All right, today we're going to talk about uh, the labor wars that took place in uh, the United States uh, in the last three decades of the 19th century. Uh, this was probably the most tumultuous and most violent time uh, for labor relations uh, in the United States. Now, between 1870 and 1900, uh, workers and employers in the United States fought a bitter, uh, emotional, and as we will see, often violent battle to control their mutually shared worlds. They fought to control the political arena. They fought to control the state. And when I talk about the state in this class, I mean all government apparatus, uh, local, state, federal government. So when I talk about the state, I don't just mean the state of Wisconsin. I mean the state generally. They fought uh, uh, to control the government apparatus, the state. Uh, they fought to control the culture of the nation. But most of all, workers and employers fought to control the workplace, to control wages, to control hours, to control uh, conditions of work, and also to control what might be uh, called the tone or the atmosphere of work, the pace of work, the rules of work, what might be called the culture of work. Now, as we know, uh, before the factory system in America began and developed, uh, laborers were usually skilled. Workers had a skill. And this meant that they had an advantage. They could dictate the culture of work. And employers, their bosses, had to go along with this because, of course, they needed them. Bosses had to allow uh, frequent breaks for the workers, uh, uh, what were called Blue Mondays, meaning three-day weekends, uh, forced to tolerate a certain amount of drinking, even on the job. Workers worked at their own pace. The bosses didn't say when the work was to be finished. The workers said when they were finished. Now, of course, as we've seen, once factories and mass production became prevalent, all of this worker independence, what we talked about republicanism earlier in the course, all of this came to an end because workers were now de-skilled. They no longer sold a product. They sold the work itself. They sold their time as the product. They were no longer independent and no longer in control because they were no longer scarce. To put it simply, no longer were they selling or making something the employer could not get from somewhere else or from someone else. And when you're a worker and you're in that position, you're not in a good position. Now, with this de-skilling uh, uh, and industrialization, as we've also said, uh, came uh, a permanent working class status in the United States, and really the end of the free labor myth of upward mobility. Now, all of this had basically occurred by the 1870s. And yet, this still didn't mean the end of the battle between employer and employee. Actually, it was only the beginning of the battle between workers and employers. Because the workers began a struggle 
to, uh, within the constraints of the factory system, and uh, uh, obviously the uh, constraints of the factory system were, were considerable, uh, to still salvage as much independence, as much control, as much autonomy, uh, uh, and as much dignity as possible. The workers fought hard, sometimes fought violently uh, against giving up their working lives to the company to carve out a space, however limited, where they were in control. Now, for their parts, the employers fought for as much control uh, over the workers as they could themselves exert, armed with a very telling, very powerful argument in a capitalist economy such as the United States, and especially powerful in the laissez-faire free market atmosphere of the late 19th century in America. They were armed with the argument that these companies were their property, that they owned these companies, that they were property. And in a nation that valued private property rights almost over all other rights, no one, not the workers, not the leaders of the workers, the union heads, not even the government, could tell the owners how to run their property. And so, by the 1870s, the battle lines were drawn between an employer class that wanted to maximize efficiency and production capacity, that wanted to maximize control over their employees, to make as much profit as they possibly could while paying as little in wages as they possibly could, and to have wages set only by the workings of the market, whatever supply and demand dictated, and not what a worker might actually need to survive. This employer class with these goals confronted an employee class, a worker class, that wanted to maximize its own independence in the workplace, to make as much money as possible in wages while working the least amount of time, to have wages determined uh, not by the market, but by the actual living needs of the workers and their families, what they needed to live on, and to organize into unions and to strike, if necessary, to achieve these goals. During the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, these opposed forces, employer and employee, clashed in some of the angriest, bloodiest, and most violent labor confrontations uh, in the nation's history. We're going to be discussing uh, four of the most important labor battles, uh, labor wars, uh, uh, in uh, American history, and certainly in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, and we'll be talking about them uh, not just because they are important uh, on their own terms uh, historically, uh, because they are, but also as a way to illustrate uh, the themes of what I'm calling these labor wars and the arguments and the strategies of the protagonists. Now, we'll start with the railroad strike of 1877. Uh, now, I've already talked about this strike briefly in the context of the end of Reconstruction. Now, in 1877, in the wake of the Great Depression uh, that started with the failure of the J. Cook Company uh, that we talked about, the 1873, uh, uh, now it's 1877, the Depression is still going on, uh, railroads uh, announced a series of wage cuts, uh, which were just the latest in a series of unilateral 
wage cuts across the railroad industry. In response, railroad workers in Baltimore, uh, Pittsburgh, and in West Virginia began a spontaneous labor strike, uh, which uh, within weeks had paralyzed uh, railroad traffic uh, between New York and Chicago, uh, 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 basically paralyzing the entire country. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, railroads were transportation in those days. Uh, uh, this would be uh, uh, this would be like an airline strike, basically. All the airlines go out on strike. Uh, it not only shuts down passenger traffic, it shuts down freight traffic as well. So. Amidst all the violence and dislocation of this strike, uh, a paralyzed economy, a paralyzed transportation system, a paralyzed nation, uh, over 100 dead, millions of dollars in property destruction, uh, overturned and destroyed locomotives, wrecked train yards, and as I mentioned before, look on the cover of Nell Painter's Standing in Armageddon, which is the book that we're reading now, uh, and you'll see a photograph from the 1877 strike. Uh, 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 basically uh, pitched battles in the streets between strikers and uh, state militias. Uh, uh, which were called out by the governors of the various states to restore order, uh, uh, cities becoming war zones. Amid all of this, a call began to come from the upper class and an increasingly frightened American middle class for the use of federal troops to put down this railroad strike. And it was Republicans, northern Republicans for the most part, who were making this call for federal troops. And What's more, making this call to the newly inaugurated president, Rutherford B. Hayes. Remember him from the disputed Hayes-Tilden election of 1876. Now, the irony here is delicious. Here are the same northern Republicans who spent most of the 1870s calling for northern troops to get out of the South, to remove federal power from the South and let that region have home rule, states' rights, as well as calling for the federal government to leave business alone generally in the North, to engage in free market, laissez-faire economics. Now these Republicans, these Northern Republicans, are demanding the ultimate act of federal involvement with the economy, the use of federal troops. Some, in a further irony, coming directly from the South, where they supposedly had been a threat to liberty there. Now... The call comes for them to come to the North to put down this railroad strike and certainly interfere with the free market in a very big way. And in response, President Hayes, who, as we recall, had promised to remove federal power from the South, remove federal troops from the South, and he was actually doing that, he did not hesitate to call in federal troops who, along with the state militias that I talked about a bit earlier, and also anti-union private guards who had been hired by the railroad owners. They were called Pinkertons uh, after the detective agency, a Pinkerton detective agency, probably still around today. But they also would give you private guards, so it's almost like a private army. Uh, uh, federal troops, state militias, and the Pinkertons put down the railroad strike and restored order, and the railroads began to run again. Essentially, then, the workers had lost. So, was this a great victory for the railroads, for the employers, for the upper class, for the middle class that was allied with them? Well, they did win the strike, but you wouldn't know it from the way these people reacted. 
The railroad strike of 1877 shook the upper class, the employer class, and the middle class in America very, very badly. They were now haunted by the violent specter of a violent and radical working class. A working class that was influenced by socialist philosophy, anarchist philosophies, and Marxist doctrines from Europe. And it didn't help that many of the strikers were recent immigrants from Europe. There was also, however, another additional factor here that really traumatized the industrial capitalist elite uh, and their allies in the American middle class. And that was the shadow of what was known as the Paris Commune, uh, which hung over the railroad strike of 1877 in a nightmare vision of murder and anarchy and destruction of established institutions. Now, what was the Paris Commune, and why was this so important? Well, we'll shift over from American history briefly to European history. In 1871... Uh, in the wake of a failed war against Prussia, which soon became uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, basically the founding state of modern Germany, uh, a failed war against Prussia by the French emperor Napoleon III, the French government in 1871 collapsed and was replaced by a Marxist-oriented regime of so-called communards, modern-day communists, who barricaded Paris, proclaimed a people's republic, attacked private property, set up worker cooperatives, and lashed out at symbols of empire, of respectability, even of organized religion. The communards executed the Archbishop of Paris and more than 30 Catholic priests publicly in one of the main squares of Paris, and then fought a bloody and ultimately unsuccessful house-to-house battle with the legitimate government of France, which ended uh, with Paris in flames and over 25,000 people dead. Now, the Paris Commune of 1871 shook the world, but it especially shook America, where from then on, every time there was a labor strike, like the railroad strike of 1877, the American upper class and middle class saw a possible repeat of the anarchy of the Paris Commune, but now on American soil. And they reacted almost hysterically, as if American democratic institutions were at stake. And in the view of the industrial capitalist class and their middle class allies, uh, American institutions uh, were at stake. The upper class and middle class in the United States interpreted any questioning of the economic order during this period of time, and the railroad strike of 1877 certainly uh, was such a questioning of the nation's economic system, uh, as attacks on the political order itself, which it may or may not have been, as an attack on democracy, on liberty, on the American system of democratic government, even on the American way of life, which the upper class and the middle class in America basically equated with unfettered and unrestrained capitalism. Now, of course, the Constitution does not specifically say, the Constitution of the United States does not specifically say that uh, America's economy must be capitalist uh, uh, without any government interference. But during these years, during the 1870s, as well as the 1880s and 1890s, the upper class and the middle class in the United States pretty much viewed the Constitution as saying this. 
And they use the image, the violent image, of the Paris Commune, extreme as it was, uh, whenever labor questioned the established economic order, as it was doing during the railroad strike of 1877. Now, in fairness and in perspective, uh, all strikes in American history combined, if you combine them all, there wouldn't have been anywhere near the 25,000 deaths that occurred uh, in a matter of weeks during the Paris Commune of 1871. 25,000 dead is almost half of what the United States lost in the entire Vietnam War or in their entire participation in World War I. But the upper class and middle class in the United States saw strikes uh, uh, in these terms, in these violent terms, not as attempts by workers to, as I said at the beginning of the lecture, carve out some control for themselves in what was an inequitable economic system, but as potential Armageddons. And this explains the upper class and the middle class, uh, their rather extreme pronouncements and actions during this and later labor disputes. Now, a further illustration of this came uh, uh, during our second example of employer-worker strife during the last three decades of the 19th century, and that is the Great Strikes of 1886 and the Haymarket bombing. Now, by 1886, a new and powerful voice for labor rights uh, was on the scene in the United States, America's first mass labor union, the Knights of Labor. Now, the Knights of Labor had been founded in 1869 as a secret organization of workers, but by the early 1880s, uh, under its president, Terence Powderly, P-O-W-D-E-R-L-Y, uh, the Knights of Labor had gone public and was rapidly gaining members. Now, the Knights of Labor insisted, in a break from the past, in organizing both skilled and unskilled workers by industry. In the past, most unions, such as they were, were organized by craft, by skill. But the Knights of Labor wanted to organize, say, the entire railroad industry, the entire steel industry, regardless of whether the workers were skilled or not. Now, skilled workers customarily avoided uh, uh, organizing with unskilled workers on the theory that the unskilled workers would drag them down in labor negotiations, since unlike skilled workers, they have no leverage. They can easily be replaced, while skilled workers do have leverage, since their work is in demand. But in the 1880s, the Knights of Labor had success organizing unskilled and skilled workers, organizing all the workers in an industry across skill lines. In 1880, there were only about 28,000 members of the Knights of Labor, but there were 729,000 by the pivotal year of 1886. Now, the Knights of Labor had what might be called a utopian vision. They believed in the complete, or eventually, the complete abolition of the wage system, uh, in worker cooperatives that would run industry cooperatively, uh, uh, an end to private property, and thus an end to class strife in the United States. Now, despite this idealism, the Knights of Labor proved uh, able to get tangible results uh, uh, for its members through strikes, which this very respectable union, and the Knights of Labor viewed themselves very respectably, uh, engaged in, they engaged in strikes only as a last resort. And, of course, successful strikes would attract more members. Now, in 1886, there was a wave of strikes across America, 
Uh, there was a railroad strike in the Southwest led by the Knights of Labor, uh, which had an inconclusive result, but just the idea that any union would stand up to the feared and hated railroad owner and financier, uh, Jay Gould, who we're going to be hearing from, from, uh, uh, from, uh, from Mara and Leo a little later. Uh, just, the, just the idea that any union would stand up to someone like Jay Gould, a man who was so mean and so ruthless uh, uh, that other robber barons disliked him. This is how bad he was. Uh, 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 just this was a victory of sorts for the Knights of Labor uh, and attracting a, attracted a a huge rise in Knights of Labor membership. There was also a major Pennsylvania coal strike uh, involving about 50,000 workers, uh, a McCormick Reaper strike, uh, uh, the Reaper Works in Chicago, uh, and also a large strike of streetcar workers in New York City. In all, there were 1,400 strikes in 1886 uh, involving some 500,000 workers. But the most momentous labor action that year came uh, in May, when workers staged a strike on May Day, May 1st, which is the traditional labor solidarity day, the holiest day of the year for socialists, Marxists, political radicals, a general strike aimed at obtaining the eight-hour workday, which employers opposed as interferences with their private property rights, their rights to run their businesses as they pleased, as I mentioned earlier. Now, on May 1st, 1886, there were general strikes in many cities, but the most trouble was in Chicago, where police attacked strikers. Three days later, in Chicago's Haymarket Square, a rally was called to protest this police brutality. Now, on this night, May 4th, 1886, in Haymarket Square in Chicago, which no longer exists, I might add, uh, there was a protest meeting called by various uh, radicals. Uh, it was a rainy night. Not all that many people showed up, uh, uh, about 2,000 to 3,000. And in the drizzle, as the, uh, as the rally came to an end in the early evening, uh, the crowd began to break up. The police began to move in to push everybody out. Suddenly, a bomb explodes out of nowhere. In the carnage, eight policemen were killed. Eight anarchists were arrested and convicted, eight radicals, labor radicals, for commit conspiracy to commit the murder of these policemen at Haymarket. Now, six of these eight were not even at the rally, and two of them were visible on the speaker's platform when the bomb went off and clearly did not throw it. Four of these eight radicals uh, were eventually uh, convicted and hanged in a atmosphere of upper class and middle class hysteria, you know, back to the Paris Commune again. Now, this crime was never definitively solved, has never been definitively solved, uh, 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 but uh, obviously someone did it, and it's probable that some labor radical did do it, uh, uh, but uh, uh, there is no real proof against any of the eight who were convicted and certainly the four who were hanged. Uh, uh, the Haymarket case is still a very, very controversial one uh, in Chicago. Uh, 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 and uh, uh, if any of you are in Chicago and interested, a, uh, uh, a monument a couple of years ago was, was I think, very belatedly put up 
uh, uh, in Chicago uh, to this Haymarket tragedy. It's, uh, uh, as I said, there's, there's no longer a Haymarket Square, uh, but it's at the corner of Randolph and Des Plaines, which is just sort of on the west side of, uh, of downtown uh, in, uh, in, in Chicago. Uh, there was a monument put up to the police who were killed. This is a different monument. A monument put up to the police who were killed, uh, and uh, over the next century, in the 20th century, it was blown up by radicals at least two times. It's finally now in Chicago police headquarters where it can't be blown up. Uh, this monument that I'm referring to at Randolph and Des Plaines is, is more of a, an official monument to, you know, to what happened. It doesn't necessarily take sides. Now, the Haymarket bombing, uh, associated uh, all of the labor movement, uh, including the Knights of Labor, uh, which wasn't even the sponsor of the Haymarket rally and which always denounced anarchists and always denounced all violence. It associated the labor movement with radicalism and disorder and violence and death in the eyes of the upper class and middle class in the United States and led to the loss of power and membership uh, uh, for the Knights of Labor because of this radical uh, uh, association. By 1890, only four years after Haymarket and the height of its power and membership, the Knights of Labor was down under 100,000 uh, uh, from its uh, 1886 peak of about seven times that number. And by 1890, the Knights of Labor had been replaced as America's preeminent labor union by another more conservative organization, the American Federation of Labor, or the AFL. Now, unlike the Knights of Labor, the AFL only organized skilled workers, leaving the unskilled workers to fend for themselves. Unlike the Knights of Labor, the uh, AFL accepted the wage system, accepted capitalism, uh, uh, although, like Marxists, the AFL did not believe in class harmony. The AFL saw the two classes, workers and employers, uh, as irrevocably opposed to each other. But unlike Marxists, the AFL did not believe in a revolutionary struggle to overthrow the capitalist system, but in collective bargaining, negotiating, and strikes where necessary to get workers as much as possible within the system as it was. Now this is what the AFL leaders would call pure and simple unionism. No utopian dreams of class harmony or the withering away of private property uh, uh, or abolishing the wage system or socialism, but just higher salaries, more benefits, and low, lesser hours uh, for its workers uh, without political sloganeering or agitation or uh, basically within the capitalist system. Now once, when asked what the AFL wanted, uh, uh, the AFL's president, Samuel Gompers, replied with a famous one-word answer, more. That's what he wanted. Now, organizing skilled workers, as you might imagine, was much easier than organizing unskilled workers. And the AFL grew rapidly from uh, 140,000 in 1886 to 1 million by 1900, and would go on to become the preeminent labor organization in America during the first three decades of the 20th century, until the rise of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the CIO, uh, uh, which, like the Knights of Labor, organized unskilled workers in the 1930s, which, of course, is ahead of our story. And, of course, the AFL survives to this day as part of the merged AFL-CIO. Now, meanwhile, 
the war between employers and workers for control of the workplace continued with more strikes, more violence, and more hardening of positions on both sides of the class divide. The next major battle took place in 1892 uh, at the Carnegie Steel Plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania, just outside Pittsburgh, where uh, Andrew Carnegie, and we heard about uh, Andrew Carnegie from uh, McKenzie uh, 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 last time, uh, decided uh, that he was going to break or try to break the steel workers' union there by bringing in non-unionized workers. And uh, 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 in response to this, the workers at the Homestead plant sat down uh, and uh, blockaded the plant and refused to leave. Carnegie called in the Pinkertons, uh, who were, uh, as I mentioned, almost like an anti-union private police force, almost like an anti-union army. Uh, uh, And also, state authorities supplied the state militia. And after a gun battle in front of the Homestead plant, which left 16 dead, as well as an anarchist attempt to assassinate Carnegie's plant manager, Henry K. Frick, which brought back more allusions to the Paris Commune and inflamed public opinion against the workers, the Carnegie plant at Homestead reopened thanks to the militia with non-union workers, and the Steel Workers' Union essentially fell apart, not to revive again for another 25 years. Now, if the disaster at Homestead in 1892 taught the labor movement that it had to control the government apparatus, or at the least prevent the government apparatus from operating against the workers, the event of the Pullman strike two years later in 1894 hammered that point home emphatically. Now, Pullman was a company town outside Chicago operated by the sleeping car magnate George Pullman. Now, in the wake of the Depression of 1893, and we'll be getting to that, another Great Depression in the United States began in 1893, uh, Pullman instituted wage reductions, but kept rents and store prices in his company town of Pullman the same. Not surprisingly, the Pullman workers struck. Led by a man who would go on to achieve great fame in the 20th century as America's greatest radical labor union, uh, uh, but who in 1894 was a relatively moderate man who just wanted to get more for his workers, a man by the name of Eugene V. Debs, uh, who we'll be hearing a report on uh, later in this course. President Grover Cleveland, President Cleveland at the time, uh, uh, in 1894, he lost no time in sending the customary federal troops in to break the Pullman strike with the customary number of dead, 34 this time. But Cleveland's attorney general had another wrinkle and added it when he successfully sued Debs' union under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Cleveland's attorney general argued, and the courts agreed, that by striking against the Pullman Company, Debs and his union had engaged in a conspiracy in restraint of trade under the Sherman Antitrust Act. When Debs ignored the court injunction ordering the strike to end, he was arrested and jailed, and the strike crumbled. By the time Debs got out of prison a few months later, he had become a radical socialist, and he spent much of the rest of his career making the government very sorry it had sent him to jail in 1894. But the Pullman strike had been the first, although not the last, instance 
in which the federal courts allowed the Sherman Antitrust Act, ostensibly passed to break up monopolies and to be used against corporations to instead be used against unions by interpreting strikes as interferences with private property rights and as such restraints against trade and commerce and as such against the uh, uh, in violation of the Sherman Act. And therein lay a bitter lesson for the American labor movement in general. If it was ever to enjoy any success in America, it would have to capture control of the government from the employers. Because if anything ties the railroad strike of 1877, Haymarket, Homestead, and the Pullman strike together, if anything ties them all together, it is the use by the employers of the state, the government, to do its bidding. And in each of these instances, government intervention of some kind, whether it was troops or police or militia or Sherman Act injunctions, it tipped the balance in favor of the employers. And generally, this was the major theme of this violent and contentious era in American labor relations, the alliance of government and capitalist against labor in the battle for control of the workplace. But while the American labor movement lost this battle between 1877 and 1896, it would, in the 20th century, win the war. It would learn from the employer's tactics and use its own advantages, uh, 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 economic power, the weight of numbers, uh, uh, and some legal strategies of their own to neutralize the government's apparatus at worst, and in the best case, capture it and use it for the labor movement's own purposes. That story, however, belongs to the 20th century. In the 19th century, labor's battle for workplace autonomy and control was a bitter, violent, and ultimately a losing one. 